The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute committed to providing the tools, trainings, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Roshi Joan Halifax, Buddhist teacher, Zen priest, anthropologist, and pioneer in the field of -of end-of-life care. She is founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the author of numerous books, the most recent of which is Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. An excerpt from the book appears in the May-June issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Joan Halifax, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much, Rabbi. I'm very happy to be here. Well, I'm honored to talk to you. I've read lots of your books, and I, I we mentioned before we actually started the show that you and I know some Zen people in common. So this is really an honor for me. Thank you. We uh, share uh, a great admiration for uh, Bernie Glassman, my teacher. And um, I'm always happy to connect with anybody who's uh, a friend of Bernie's. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I met him first in 1984. Ah. So let's start with your, you know, it's a short conversation. We don't have a lot of time, but I'm really curious about your spiritual journey. What drew you to Buddhism and then what drew you to Zen in particular? So I... I was drawn to Buddhism, I think, because it's so completely practical, pragmatic. You know, I, I in the 60s, read D.T. Suzuki and had access to books by Alan Watts and went to a talk by Alan Watts in uh, New York. But I think the most significant connection for me was um, during the mid-60s in a big peace march in New York where, you know, all of the people my age were very much involved in the civil rights and the anti-war movement. There was a big anti-war uh, peace march happening. And um, there was one person who was walking incredibly slow, and that person was Thich Nhat Hanh. And he was someone who brought together uh, contemplative practice and social action in a way that really made sense to me. And I wasn't to become his student for another 20 years, but um, his 
work, his life, his aspirations, his vision um, deeply touched me. So I was brought to Buddhism uh, quite naturally um, as a person in the 60s who was socially engaged. I can appreciate the image of him walking slow. When I had a synagogue in Miami, Florida in the 80s and 90s, we, I was in touch with him at uh, Plum Village. We built a big walking meditation garden, and he sent us a nun to spend the Sabbath with us and teach us how to walk the garden properly. And picking her up at the airport and watching her walk through the airport to get to the car so we could get to where we had to go was incredibly painful. <laughs> it was like so not Jewish. We were running through. I don't know about Bernie. Maybe he was moving a little faster. But you know, um, Ber Bernie moves at his own Bernie velocity. Yeah, that is a good way to put it. That is a good way to put it. But you ended up studying in, in the Korean Zen model. Yeah, I am, you know, I taught at Naropa, um, which was a, you know, very interesting experience. I was married to Stan Groff. Uh, I met uh, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, and uh, Joseph Goldstein in the early 70s, was really moved by them. They were somewhat younger than me, but they really, um, you know, had taken on a tremendous vision and endeavor in the Insight Meditation Society. And, um, you know, it just, uh, I wanted to, you know, sort of bring great Buddhist teachers together. And Jack said to me, oh, you have to meet De Santanim. So um, I did, and it was a real fit for that period of time in my life. And so I practiced with Sung Sansanim for uh, 10 or 11 years. Um, and I transitioned out of that relationship. Uh, for many reasons, but not the least of which was that I had the opportunity to meet Thai more intimately in the 1980s and um, in the mid-1980s. And so um, I decided, in part because Sansani was not socially engaged, uh, which is one of the reasons I, I stopped practicing with him. Um, but Thai, you know, had a deep emphasis in in his own work on social engagement, I began to practice with Thich Nhat Hanh. And it really, you know, came out of that, the, the aspiration to integrate uh, contemplative practice with social action. Mm. And then working with uh, Sung San, right, as a continued? No, I, I stopped practicing in part because of the social action. You know, um, and I had done many sessions. Uh, I had uh, been through the, his, his koan curriculum, so to speak. And it was a great experience. It was very, very rigorous, very uh, good training. But I, you know, I can't, it, it came to an end and in a good way. And I, I wanted, you know, to, uh, if I, if you, if I can put it this way, I just wanted to integrate more fully my contemplative practice with social action. Yeah. Oh, I understand that completely. So, thank you for sharing that with us. L let me let me shift gears and go to the book, Standing at the Edge. In the beginning of the book, early in the book, you talk about altruism, and if I read it correctly, you make a distinction between Western psychology with its notion that altruism is always conditioned by the ego to one extent or another, 
while Buddhism has this teaching that you can be altruistic and compassionate in a way that's free from ego. So I wonder if you could tell us more about the difference and why, and I'm assuming this is true, why you think the Buddhist position is the more true. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that I make that point exactly like that, Rabbi. I think that uh, there are altruists like, for example, I talk about Nicholas Winton or Wesley Autry. Um, you know, I tell their stories within the altruism chapter. And um, both of those stories for me are, are examples of, uh, you know, an expression of uh, altruism, which is basically selfless. And um, uh, so I, I don't think that, yeah, no, I, I don't think I want to make the point that Western altruists are selfish or egoic. There are many uh, instances of, you know, examples of Westerners who just are operating out of a completely unselfish, non-egoic perspective. But, um, you know, I do make the point uh, uh, at a, a certain, you know, place in the chapter that um, uh, altruism in Buddhism is based on the experience of uh, actualizing the sense of no separate self-identity. And I think I give the example of uh, maybe Thich Nhat Hanh, or maybe it was Shantideva. But anyway, it's where the right hand just naturally helps the left hand if the left hand is injured. This is Thai's example, or Shantideva. It was, it was Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, so with the Thich Nhat Hanh example. Later, I, I think I used the example of, of Shantideva. If you have a thorn in your foot, you just naturally pull it out. Right. And um, there's no self and other. It's just this seamless uh, relationship with the experience of uh, ending suffering for another, in that case, the hand and the foot. Not separate, but um, different. So, you know, I, I actually don't want to say that um, there are no unselfish uh, altruists in Western culture. I think that that would be make me a little unpopular. <laughs> you know, I do kind of make the point, you know, in, in that, that, you know, Buddhism has a frame of reference, which has, is based in the realization of the absence of an inherent self. I really like the example that you, you gave with the hands, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's example, that if the left hand is injured, the right hand instinctually takes care of it. Why so, you know, you and I are talking, and usually we don't try to make these things topical, but I don't think it's possible to avoid it. I mean, you and I are talking when uh, we've got little kids in internment camps, we've got families being torn apart at uh, the southern border of the United States. You've got some people applauding it, some people being horrified by it. Why is it so difficult for people to feel that oneness for other humans that the right hand feels for the left. Why, why are we more stupid than our hands? If I could answer that um, in <laughs> this short period of time, I think I would probably get uh, a prize. I, I can't answer that, but you know, I am acutely aware of the uh, atmosphere of dehumanization that is very present in our country today and probably in many other countries. 
but it's particularly poignant uh, today, this very day, um, which is as we're approaching summer solstice, uh, day after tomorrow, where the light is the longest uh, in the course of a year. Um, it's too, you know, important for us to shed light on um, the uh, increasing uh, threat we have to um, our uh, experience of basic goodness. And, um, you know, from my point of view, and uh, I, I've been in, in the grip of this uh, travesty that is, has been unfolding in our country um, and has unfolded before. We're talking about Japanese internment camps. We're also uh, talking about what happened in Native American cultures right. when Native American children were put into, uh, you know, BIA schools. Um, this is not the first time that we have uh, objectified and, uh, people and children and torn them apart from their families. Um, but uh, right now, I feel one of the most important thing, things that we need to do is to, you know, engage in a rehumanization process to sensitize ourselves to um, uh, the danger that we're in, where we are really, you know, losing our moral grounding and um, to remember who we really are. And to conscientiously and consciously uh, practice loving kindness, um, to practice even toward those who harm others. And I'm not saying not hold uh, those who are causing harm accountable, but it means uh, practicing loving kindness toward those who harm is to recognize that even the state of mind of those who harm, that is also suffering. Right. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. No, I, I didn't want to give the impression that this is just happening now and just here. Like you said, it's been part of the history of the United States for quite a long time. Uh, but it also happens all over the place. I, I wonder what your, just want to get your reaction to something. So in the 20th century, mid 20th century, there was a philosopher, a Jewish guy named Emmanuel Levinas. And Levinas said, and I'm simplifying this, but uh, Levinas said he had a thing that, was, that he called the philosophy of the face. And he said that when you actually see the face of another, you know, deeply, and I guess looking into their true nature, you feel commanded to do no harm. That it's uh, just that true meeting triggers the, this reclaiming of our shared humanity and this commandment coming really from the inside or maybe from Mar what Martin Buber might call the between, the two, this place of meeting. But even if the other doesn't see you, if you see the other, you have this, you sense this commandment to do no harm and I'm looking at the way we are looking at the other, in quotes. We don't want to see their face. 
we're, we're avoiding, it, it's almost as if there's a conspiracy against actually seeing the face of another. Just what, what's your take on that, if any? I think that is a really powerful, powerful image. Um, you know, to gaze into the eyes of another um, in an unguarded, unmediated, unfiltered way um, is to connect your humanity with their humanity. And I think you're absolutely right and, uh, in calling this, uh, and, and it's powerful to call this particular image forward because um, in Zen, we would call it warm hand to warm hand. Um, it is to um, see ourselves in others and to live in a way, and in a certain way, it's almost the spirit of the golden rule, do unto others. Um, how do we uh, look more deeply past the, uh, the skin and the stereotypes into the great human heart? And, you know, I actually try to practice this with people who are very difficult for me, including um, some of our politicians, you know, I, which is why I say that, um, you know, part of gazing into the human heart, into the face of another is to also recognize um, uh, that the state of mind of those who harm um, or what they have been through that has created uh, such alienation, this is also suffering. And so it's generating compassion um, for those who are in that state of mind and heart. Well, I think, I mean, I agree with that. And then I would suggest that, that we don't want to feel compassion for them, that we don't want to look into their face. We don't want to see their humanity either. You, if I remember right from the well, book. Well, I'm not sure, it, you know, we're looking into their face, um, the face of someone who's harming like the face of Hitler. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's to, to, you know, understand that their experience of humanity is characterized by profound suffering, but right. it's not suffering that elicits you know, the usual kind of so-called compassion or positive response for, from us. It could elicit horror. Right, right. Recognizing the suffering, though, is, seems to be part of, of what you're, you're talking about. But you use a term, I didn't realize it until just now with this Levinas thing. You, you call it emotional blunting or emotional blindness. How do we, you have practices in the book, and we've only got a couple of minutes left, are there, is there something that we can do um, to, to overcome that emotional blunting and blindness? Well, I think there are a number of uh, things that we actually can do. You know, one is um, to uh, become uh, much more attentionally grounded and, if you will, less a toy of our uh, technological devices um, which uh, tend to unground us and distract us and divide and disperse our attention because we can't see things deeply unless um, we have attentional balance. So just, just the practice, for example, of attending to our breath is really critical in terms of uh, allowing us to cultivate a quality of attention that's characterized by um, vividness or clarity where we can see things more clearly. But I also think that we need to um, dedicate our uh, our attention, our endeavors around attentional balance, 
um, to uh, a motivation that is um, deeply directed toward ending the suffering of other beings. And um, this is, you know, this cultivation of a, of a loving, uh, unselfish heart. And I remember uh, years ago, this was, you know, in the 70s when I first met Sharon and she told me about the Brahma Viharas or the practice of the boundless abodes and um, of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity and the practices associated with those boundless mental qualities. And I, as a Zen person, was like, I don't know, you know, it sounds pretty syrupy to me. And she said, just do it. It will change your life. And um, actually, uh, I'm not the perfect example of these qualities at, of, at all. But I will say that the practice of these boundless abodes um, has, I am sure, restructured my nervous system in a positive way, in a way that um, I feel my life has lent more toward love. Well, that's a positive, powerful testimony to that. We, we are technically out of time, and I, I guess, but I want to put you on the spot in the sense that, that I have a, one more question I really want to get your response to, and I realize the time is so, so short, but see what you can do with it. Because I'm, I've really delved into your work in end-of-life care, and I didn't want to let that go in this short conversation. And here, here's my question. I'm wondering if there are lessons you've learned from all of this end-of-life care work that you've done that is applicable to what may be the end of, or like the Kali Yuga, you know, like the end of the dying of liberal democratic civilization. Is there something you, can, you, you know that you can say, look, this is how it works, and this is what I've learned, and you can apply this to the death, perhaps, of, of liberalism? What, what's your take on that? Well, um, I, I will say that um, I've just I've just written a piece. I'm I'm giving a, a talk at Sojuji Monastery uh, on the 9th of November, which is uh, in in our Soto lineage in Japan. It's a, to- a talk on hope, and I, I'm not going to say much about it here because I I'm really piling through this. Uh, this um, uh, exploration of hope. But in part of this talk, I, I remind uh, my listeners that um, I wish there were two words over our temple door, and those words were show up. That no matter what is happening, how futile it all might seem, even um, the reversal that Trump made today in relation to his immigration policies, and we don't really know what the sort of back door is, uh, you know, pointing toward. But um, we don't know. We have to live really in the sense of not knowing. And um, this takes me uh, right into the three tenets that Bernie Glassman and Ji Shuangyu Holmes articulated in the uh, 90s when they were developing the Zen Peacemaker Order of um, what is it to rest in this kind of beginner's mind, the mind of not knowing, the heart of, of, of unknowing, and to bear witness to whatever is arising. And out of not knowing and bearing witness, um, we have this kind of uh, platform 
that we can respond to the suffering of the world. And I will say that, you know, as somebody who's in her mid-late 70s, I'm grateful for having lived this long because I feel that um, uh, I have more to bring to this time where desolation and futility are so present uh, than and any other time uh, uh, in the course of my life, partly because of what I have learned from my greatest teachers. And those teachers have been those who uh, I have had the privilege of sitting with as they've been dying. Mm-hmm. Well, that is beautifully put and I think very, very helpful to us. So thank you for that. And I realize it was a, you know, had, you had to come up with something very quickly. So I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed with the quality of that teaching. It really helps. Our guest today was Roshi Joan Halifax. You can read an excerpt from her newest book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet, in the May-June issue of Spirituality Health magazine. For more information about her work, please visit upaya.org. Joan Halifax, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. I look forward to us meeting again one day. That would be nice. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Support for this show comes from the National Wellness Institute, committed to providing the tools, training, and resources to propel your career in wellness. Become a member today at nationalwellness.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour, part pilgrimage, as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites we will visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com backslash holyland hyphen with hyphen Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and to download the iTunes app for this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.